Well, good morning, everybody, again. Glad you could make it out on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, anyway, Super Bowl weekend, and I was planning to preach a certain sermon, even up until last night, and I just couldn't shake a different area of the scripture. And, and as I was thinking about the Super Bowl more and more, I was going to talk about, you know, what the game day and how everybody's so excited. And, and at the end of the day, there's going to be a winner and a loser. And I was going to discuss that aspect on how that's kind of like life for us. We, you know, we try so hard at times, yet things go our way and sometimes they don't go our way. So maybe we'll talk about that in the future. But the more I just thought about it, the more the armor of God was coming back to me to preach that series again. And Steve had mentioned it to me at Christmas nights, and it was kind of whirling around. And then I thought about Super Bowl and the helmets and the armor, and I thought, you know what, I just want to start a series and, and go through it. And so I pulled up some old notes um, from, I hadn't preached it in over three years, and I always like to rewrite my sermons so that they're fresh. But I got to be honest this morning, is after reading it, I didn't really have too much to change. And so there's a few notes I changed in here, but it had been three years. And when I reread it, I kind of preached to myself last night. I'd forgot all this stuff and it was exciting to me last night. So I thought, well, if it's exciting to me, I can hopefully make it exciting for you this morning. So we're going to start off in the book of Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 to 18, that says this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities against powers, against rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand... Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayers and supplications in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications for the saints. Now, when the author was writing to the church of Ephesus, we need to understand a little bit of its background. The church in Ephesus was in a major, major city. Ephesus was a major city. Matter of fact, it's estimated that approximately 300,000 people were living there. And for that time, that was a big, big city. And so there was 300,000 people there, and it was the capital of that region of Asia Minor. It was also one of the largest port cities in the area. So there was a lot of people coming out and going out, and it was wealthy, and there was lots of shipping going on. It was a bustling with trade at this time when Paul was writing to the church of Ephesus. People were living in lavish homes for that time. They would go out to the theater, and theaters were made that would seat 25,000 people. We're talking about an amazing, amazing city for its time. And so you have to think in the culture of it, it was like a metropolitan area. The culture of the city in Ephesus at the time was very diverse and it was multicultural. There was people from everywhere, you know, you know, much like the area that we live in Vancouver. There was just people from all over the place, many different cultures. And there was a wide range of social acceptances in the name of tolerance. They were proud of their tolerance at that time. Moral depravity was at an all-time high. We look around to what's going on 
around here and we think God should bring his judgment now, at that time, it would put our area to shame as far as morality went. Like in a, in a put the bad to shame. And so moral depravity was extremely, extremely high. There was temple prostitutes that would just fill the streets. And it was often honorable and you would be told that it would accelerate your spiritual experience to go have these encounters with temple prostitutes. And so this is what was going on at the time. Now, when it came to religion, they were a polytheistic society, which means there was more than one God. Now, the main God at the time was the God that I'm sure all of you have heard of before is Diana. It was the main God that they worshipped at that time. And she was huge. People would come from everywhere to go to the temple of Diana. And so it would be like an excursion and they would go. It would be like, we know that everybody like goes to Disneyland. That's what it would be like. If you lived somewhere, they would at some time want to be heading off to the temple of Diana. It was people coming from all different places to see this. Now, there was Diana who was the highest God, but below Diana, there was also several other lesser gods. It was a, it was a culture that, that worshipped multiple gods. And so, if you were adamant about there only being one God, it was almost considered treasonous. It was so multi-God-orientated that if you said, no, there's only one God, it would be a statement that would be like, everybody would stop and look at you like, what did you just say? And it was considered almost treasonous. If you declared such a thing, you got to remember, Paul's writing to this people who have a big church in Ephesus. And so if, if you said this, which many of these people or all the people who were reading this were likely doing, it would result in rejection. It res- would result in social pressure and there would be persecution over stating such a thing. It could also result, if it went far enough, into being persecuted for it, being tortured for it, and sometimes even being put to, ha- to death by the hands of your neighbor or the state. So if you said, there is only one God, like as our proclamation is, you would be a social outcast at the very least, and at the very most, if you were causing too much problems, you would be tortured and possibly even put to death in that city for saying there is only one God. So that is the city, that is the culture. Now at the time, it was under Roman occupation. Now, a lot of these cities at that time were under Roman occupation, and we've probably talked about it a few times, Um, but the Roman Empire was the world's largest empire. They ruled much of the world. And so they were extremely strong, extremely powerful, and they were continuing to conquer all areas. And they were conquering and maintaining their presence with fear. It was not like, come join us, we're going to offer you lots of things and all sorts of healthcare and different things. No, it's like we conquer you, you abide by our rules, or you're in big trouble. That was the rule of the time. They were conquering and maintaining their presence by fear. And through that, there would be harsh, harsh penalties. Flogging was nothing at the time. For you to mess up and just be like flogged in the streets didn't take much. So that's a pretty harsh reality. Flogging would take place. Crucifixions were common. When you walked around, you would see people crucified. Like you could walk to a crucifixion. Imagine that. We think morality's messed up here. 
They were like temple prostitutes all in the streets. You'd see people flogged and you could walk up on the weekend and see people hanging on a crucifix. That's the state of the situation that these people were in. And the Roman soldiers were known as being so tough and so ruthless. All you would have to do is look at one to understand how tough they are. They were extremely non-tolerant to society, even though society was tolerant. They, would, they were vicious, and they were suited in armor to suit that government at the time. So their attire complemented them. And so when he was writing the letter, we have to understand that the people he was writing to would understand this extreme and intimidating soldier. So when he would say, let's talk about the armor of God, they would automatically relate it to a Roman soldier, how the Roman soldier would use it. So for us just to say, oh, I can put on this and this and this and read the Bible without taking it in the context, we're really missing what the author was trying to say. And so Paul writing to the Ephesians, he says this, and we'll look at it one more time and we'll stop just after the the first one. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. So now in this context, think about it. You're in in the city, crazy stuff's going on. You've just become a Christian and realize if you proclaim it, it's going to be tough. And so you have Roman soldiers that you're seeing beating up people in the streets, dragging them through the streets, flogging them in the streets, crucifying them in the streets. And Paul makes a comparison by doing this. Put on the whole armor of God. And right away they would understand what he was saying and try to put it into context that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against power, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, and we'll stop here, having girded your waist with truth. So the first thing that Paul discusses in this armor is the waist belt of truth. And so he gets right to the root and he says, here is what you're going to need to survive in this culture. He tells them that this is not a physical armor that we're talking about. Try to relate this Roman physical armor to what I'm going to tell you in a spiritual way. Try to do the comparison in that way. And so he gets right to the point. He says, this is not a physical armor. It is physical stuff is not the root of the problem that what is happening is much greater than physical people in the area. What is taking place is that there's spirits behind this stuff, that there's an enemy, that we live in a fallen world behind this stuff. And so he's telling him to put on the whole armor of God, not a physical armor, but a spiritual armor to battle against a spiritual being. Are you with me? So the first thing he tells them is to gird with the belt of truth. First thing they need to know to defeat this stuff and to fight against this stuff is that they, the first piece of armor they should put on is that they should be girded with the belt of truth. Now, the belt of truth was very important for any Roman soldier. And that's why Paul starts with it. Basically, it keeps everything together. That's what it does. The belt of truth keeps all the other armor together. It's where the soldier would hang his sword from. So if he didn't have a belt, he wouldn't have the sheath to put, a, to put on the belt. That's where he kept his sword. So the belt was very important. It held everything together. It helped his, he held his sword there. His shield would hang there when it was not in use. 
would hang on his belt. The breastplate would bed in and tuck into the belt on the Roman soldier. And so without it, basically the soldier would fall apart. His armor would fall apart. So that's how I like to view that, that without the belt, his armor would fall apart. He would fall apart. And the same with us. When Paul is talking about the armor of God, he's saying that the belt of truth is very important because without it, you're just going to fall apart. It is the centerpiece to all of our armor. And so we have to relate that to us. So when Paul talks about the belt of truth in this manner, he is talking about the truth of God or the word of God. That's what it is. He's saying, first and foremost, what's going to keep everything together is the word of God. So the first piece of armor that we need to understand in the armor of God is the truth of God, the word of God, the scripture, God's truth. That is the first thing we need to realize. And basically what he's saying is that it is futile to go to battle without it. You can have the sword, you can have the shield of faith, you can have the breastplate, you can have the helmet of salvation, but if you're going to go to battle without the belt, you're going to fall apart because that's what ties everything together. You need to know the belt of truth to use your sword. You need to know the belt of truth to use your shield. You need to know the belt of truth to know your breastplate. You need to know the belt of truth to know your helmet. Everything about it is the centerpiece And for us, that is the word of God. It is futile for us to try to go to battle or conquer without the word of God. It's like a tradesman without his tool belt. You know, if you go to work and there's a carpenter who's going to frame your house and he's got no tools and doesn't have his belt on, you're going to be thinking, what's wrong with that guy? You're going to go to work? You get ready to go to work? Same with us. If we're going to get ready to go to work, we need to have the belt of truth, which is the word of God in our lives. Otherwise, like the tradesmen, how many of you have ever done a project and you forget your belt and you're like always putting your tools down and you're always having to grab things and you're grabbing your drill and you're grabbing your screws and different things. You got to put it down. It just takes twice as long. It's terrible. You're always scrambling. But when you got your tool belt on and everything's right there, you're ready to go. So what Paul is saying is that it's futile to go to battle without the belt of truth. And in the scripture, there are references that talk about how powerful the word of God is. Now, the first scripture we're going to look at is Psalm 1, 1 through 3, and it says this. Blessed is the man or woman. Blessed is mankind. Anybody want to be blessed in this place? I know we already are, but walk in the blessing? I do. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's who's blessed. Doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. So right away, he says, listen, if you want to be blessed, you need to know where you're getting your wisdom from. You need to know where you're getting your knowledge from. You need to know where you're getting your advice from. And he's saying it's not from the counsel of the ungodly, not from the path of the sinner, nor the one who sits in the seat of the scornful, but blessedness comes from the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. And what happens if we spend time in the word? It goes on to say, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So I look at that scripture, and it excites me. At the same time, it really convicts me. Because it says here, listen, blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. And I have to think to myself, I got to measure all this stuff out. How many times do I want to go to some other counsel that is against the word of God? Because maybe it's easy or That's how I've grown up, you know. It's just a, uh, uh, 
It's just a tradition in my life or a, or a, or a routine in my life or a rut in my life. And when I look at this, it says, listen, there's some good stuff here. That Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Right off the bat, saying, who should we be listening to first? You ever hit a hard time in your life, and the first thing you want to do is call somebody? That's okay, maybe, if your friends are going to pray for you, but before you pick up, I'm still picking up an old phone, before you pick up your phone, you got one way ticket into the presence of God, right? It's like when you have a headache, the first thing we do is grab the ibuprofen. But what should we do before, or at least during grabbing the ibuprofen? We need to remember that, listen, that's wonderful, and maybe that's put to help us through, but we should also be talking to God about these things if we're having to deal with this in life. And we all do. We're all a work in progress. We're all walking through this stuff. All he's saying is, who are you going to talk to first? Who are you going to listen to? You might say, take an ibuprofen, <laughs> right? But it's about putting things in order. Blessed is he. Blessed is he whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. Day and night. Last night, I didn't have a good sleep. I had this thing going through my head. And I'd wake up and the scenario was going through my head. And it's something that was bothering me that shouldn't bother me. And every time I got up, I was like getting mad about the situation. And it took me till about three o'clock in the morning this morning to like switch over to him and like apply the word to the situation. And after doing that at like three in the morning while I'm tossing and turning, all of a sudden a peace came. Why? Because the truth is stronger than any lie. Right? That's why we looked at strongholds a couple weeks ago or last week. I can't remember. But it was a stronghold. We saw what the Bible says a stronghold is. It's not some enemy in the sky. A stronghold is, may have originated with the enemy, but what it is, it's an idea. It's, it's something that we've been drawn away with, an idea, and it's locked into our brains. And the Bible says that we pull strongholds down by comparing it to the knowledge of God. And it's like, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Right? God is always the highest authority. It's like trying to put darkness into a room of light. It can't happen. And so we compare it to the word of God. And blessed is he who meditates this word day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What does that mean? Just always being nourished. You ever feel in life like we're just dry and God, what's going on? Sweet, we need to remember that, you know what, we've, our heads have been getting filled with too much Netflix and, and too much other stuff and we got to fill it back up with the word of God and meditate that day and night. And then we'll be nourished like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season and its leaf shall not wither. He'll sustain us and whatever we do with shall prosper. Isn't that an awesome scripture? That's so cool. Why, why should we be able to do everything because he is everything, right? He has the answer for everything. He is everything. Second scripture, Hebrews 4, 11 and 12. See this day and night stuff? Now another thing. Let us therefore be diligent. He's really telling us in the scripture, be diligent. Meditate day and night. This takes some oomph. Therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God, he's talking about a bad situation. He goes into, into not falling into that disobedience. How do we do it? Through the word of God. For the word of God is living 
and powerful and sharper. So let's just stop there. The word of God is living and powerful. That's why it has the ability to change our lives. That's why it does. That's why it has the ability to take a thought in my head and throw it, crush it last night. That's why, because it's living and powerful. It is not just letters on a page. It is not just a history lesson. That's one of the things that changed my life as a Christian. When I realized that the word of God was not just a lesson, it was life. That literally I was being hooked up to life support when I was reading this stuff. And every once in a while, when I would get too stupid, it would almost feel like I'd get into the word of God. And it was like, I was getting fibulated, you know, clear with the word. And once in a while, we need that. We just like, ah, but once in a while, we just need clear. And that's what the word of God is. It's life. When we're out of rhythm, our hearts or when our hearts are dying or something's happening, what do we want? We want the, those things to bring us back to life. His word is life and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. What it means, it's sharper than anything you're facing. You know what, there's even a proverb that says lust, and, and that means in every kind of lust. Lust is a two-edged sword. Well, the word of God is what? Sharper than any two-edged sword. God is not outdone by any temptation. God is not outdone by anything in our lives. It's sharper than anything we face. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. So all this stuff, first of all, the word of God gets us saved and makes our spirits reborn. But the soul atmosphere of our lives, the soul part of our lives, which is our mind, our will and emotions, the Bible says that the word of God has the ability to get into that. Our mind, our will and our emotions. It can even change our emotions. Isn't that cool? Sometimes he just tells us to like we looked at a couple weeks ago, to just do something to change our emotions. Like he says, rejoice, remember? Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. But it'll get into anything. The soul, the spirit, the joints and the marrow. That's why when we were just praying for George in the hospital, I believe the word of God can get to the very marrow of someone's physical body. The joints and the marrow. And as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's a wonderful thing about the Word of God. He straightens up our thinking. He really does. I can't tell you, the, the more I think, the more I increase in my knowledge of the Word of God, it's, it's kind of a kingdom paradox. I always realize the less I know, really, in life. When I was younger, I think I used to, you know, everything and conquer anything. It's like I just knew the Word of God. But the more I actually know the Word of God, I realize the less I know. And I realize how much He does know. And how many things I've viewed through my own filters. And how many things I look at wrongly. And the intents of my heart are like, you know, it gets right down to why did I just do that? You know? Did we help that person for a thank you? Or did we help that person because it was just good to help that person? Right? Are we nice because we're scared of conflict? Or are we just being nice because we should be nice? He discerns even that out. The thoughts and the intents of the heart. Anywhere the word of God can get to in all of our lives. It's living and it's powerful. Matthew 16, 13 through 17. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man am? So they said, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. See, the word of God is living. And so as we read it, he has the ability in our lives to make it real to us. That's what revelation is. That's what it is. When you get a revelation, what it is is simply you've received the word of God and it has become alive to you. It's become real to you. That's what it is. Revelation. It's just an unveiling. It's like we read and all of a sudden, whoa, the wrapper comes off the package. You know, we're looking at something and all of a sudden, whoa, we realize, oh, there was an inside to this thing. And your heart knows that you know, that you know, that you know. And sometimes it's just knowing something about the Bible, but sometimes it's knowing something very specific about your life that comes from the word. And we were just discussing this last week about the voice of God. And I totally agree in our discussion after church last week was that when it comes to the voice of God, God primarily speaks to us through the reading of the word of God. And the number one reason for that is there's so much safety in that. So that we don't get crazy and say, God said, the spirit and the word always agree, the scripture says. And so that's why if somebody says, God said this, and it either doesn't match your heart or it's not in the scripture, they can say all they want. Doesn't mean it's God, right? And so it's very important for us to be in the word of God and hear the word of God. And that's what I tell everybody when they're, when they're searching for the voice of God, which again, I remind people, it's not like, hey, Trent, it's this, he speaks within. He speaks with peace a lot of the times, or he speaks with a knowing or just a revelation from his word of God. And I tell people all the time, when, they get, when, they, when they're practicing hearing the voice of God, the best way they're going to do that is read the scripture. And why is that? Because that is God's voice. God's voice. It is very brief. The Bible says that scripture is inspired. And that word inspired is a Greek word that means God breathed. And so when we read the scripture, we are reading and hearing God. And so the more we read the scripture, and again, the whole counsel of the scripture, like last week we discussed, you can take anything out of context, but the more we read, we get to know his voice. And then what happens is that when he does speak to us, we recognize it for our lives. I've shared this many times over the years, but it's, it's like Sherry. She can call me up and she can say, hey, Trent. And I mean, just a few seconds, I know. She doesn't have to say, hi, this is Sherry Saltz, Right? She just says, hey, Trent, doesn't even have to say her name, doesn't even have to say it's share or nothing. Hey, Trent, what's going on? I know, even if it's not her uh, name on the phone. So funny, I have to change preaching over the years. It was like, I, used, I would use that 10 years ago, and I'd be like, because you're still on a normal phone, it's not like saying Sherry's calling me. And so, but she could call me from any phone, and in just a couple of seconds, I would know it's her. Why? Because we've spent so much time together. I know how she talks. Now, even if someone imitated her voice to the T and they had a computer program that could imitate her to the T and it would sound just like her, after 30 seconds, maybe a minute, I would start to realize it's not her. And why is that? Because I even know how she would answer. I know how she would answer questions. I know how, what she would get excited or not excited about. I know when she would get mad or not mad over a situation. And pretty soon, I would just know it's not her. I'd be like, what's going on here? Why? Because I know her and I've spent time with her. 
And so the same with the voice of God for our personal lives when we're wanting God to lead us, because the Bible says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and daughters of God, right? Those who are led by the Spirit. The Bible says that we are a sheep and we hear his voice. Yes, through the scripture primarily, but out of that scripture, out of that word, he wants to speak to us individually for our lives. And the way we get to know his voice better is by spending time with him. And how do we spend time with his voice? We got a lot of books in the Bible to read. That's his voice. That's his voice. And spending a lot of time listening to see how Jesus talks. Because that's, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. If you've heard Jesus, you've heard the Father. But the Scripture's inspired by God. And so he said, that's been revealed to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. I love the fact that we serve a God that can reveal stuff to us. He's the king of the universe. And the Bible says that he will reveal stuff to us, that he'll talk to us. That's so cool. All right, last scripture. Psalm 119, 105. The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How many ever get out in the middle of the night because you got to go to the washroom, especially you over 40 years old? That could be a couple times a night. And if your room's really dark, and when your kids were younger and they had Lego on the ground, that was a painful trip, right? Because you couldn't see things. But the Bible says that the word of God is a lamp to my feet. That he'll show the way when we walk. He'll, he's going to show us the way that we can see where we're going. And I want to tell you, there's way too many times in my life where I wish I would have saw where I was going. I would have hit the brakes, man. <laughs> there's so many times I would have hit the brakes. And from big decisions to just little decisions. And I know we talk about the Holy Ghost check. You know, that thing that when you're about to say something to your spouse and you get that uh, feeling and you say it anyways. <laughs> That's one of those moments where, dude, you should have hit the brakes. A lamp to our feet, to our mouth, and a light to our path. Man, it's nice to know where we're going. And we have a God that lives where we're going. We have a God that stands outside of time. We have a God that's not only omnipresent and all-powerful, but he's omniscient. He stands outside of time. So where we're going, he already is. And so when we pray, he can give us wisdom on where we're going. Right? That's why he might say not to maybe be in that relationship or not to be around that situation or to be in that situation. Why? He sees down the road. Now, he's got grace if we make those stupid decisions, and he's like the GPS, you know, when you take a wrong turn and just keeps telling you to try to get back to that street. That's like God. He never gives up on us. He keeps trying to put us back to the road. But I wish I wouldn't have missed the turn in the first place. And the Bible says that his word is a light for our path. He has the ability to say, I'd take a left here, and I'd take a right here, and keep on this for another nine miles, and all this stuff and don't get involved here and be careful here and be nice to that person and just be nicer in general and all this stuff that he tells us to try to keep us from running into a tree. So what's the application for this sermon? I think it's real simple. I challenge all of us today and your daily reading might be this big. Somebody else's might be this big or several this big. But I challenge you today to make a daily reading in the Word of God. And if you haven't read the Word of God in like a year, except when you're here, pick an easy thing. Read a gospel, real slow. Or even easier than that, you want to just get a bunch of nuggets, just start in the book of Proverbs. 
It's one of my favorite books, yet it's the easiest book, and it's one of those things where there's no start or stop to it. It's just nugget after nugget after nugget after nugget after nugget. And if that's you, if you haven't been digging in the Word, or you know it's just not been your lifestyle, start in the Proverbs. It's called the Book of Wisdom, and it's just full of nuggets for our lives. But I challenge everybody, and I mean daily, because the Scripture says, blessed is he who meditates this day and night, and you only have to read a proverb to meditate that day and night and begin to learn his voice. And so wherever you're at, I challenge you just to, maybe your life's perfect that way, but if it's not, I challenge you to make a daily reading. And I guarantee all these other things we're going to talk about over the next few weeks, the preparation of the gospel of peace, sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, all that stuff is founded and held together by the word of God. And so if we just get in that routine, it will also help us use all the other weapons. It helps us to operate in all those things. It holds everything together. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word today. I thank you for your word in general. I thank you for your word every day. So Father, I pray for us that as we choose today to make a daily reading, as we do that, as we choose to make that daily reading, Father, that we will continue to grow in you, that our paths will brighten, that we will see your sharp sword come into our lives and divide things out of our lives that shouldn't be there, that we will be like that tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither and whatever we do shall prosper. And I pray, Lord, that we will make a commitment today to do that in the name of Jesus. Amen.